If you have your Bibles, please uh, turn with me to the book of Galatians. And as always, if you do not have a Bible, there are Bibles on the back table next to our offering box. We would love for you to take one of those home if you don't, if you don't have one. Um, I'm excited to continue in our series this morning, The Gospel for Life. We are in week two of a 13-week series, so we are just getting started, and I'm so excited. It's a new series, um, a new season. I mentioned last week how hard it is to believe that it's already September, and get this, it's even harder to believe that Christmas, dare I say, is only 15 weeks away. Yeah. So um, I know where some of you are going to land on this next topic, but I absolutely love Christmas. I absolutely love it. Uh, I love everything that the season brings with it. I love the warm fires and the cold snow. Oh, just drink it in with me. Uh, the delicious food, the, the amazing music. And the last couple of weeks, as I have studied the book of Galatians, believe it or not, one particular Christmas song has been on repeat in my mind. I cannot get it out of my head. Santa Claus is coming to town. So whether, whether you prefer Bing Crosby's version or Perry Como's version or Bruce Springsteen or Mariah Carey or don't even say it, Justin Bieber's, no, no, that's not allowed. But whatever it is, that wherever you land on with this song, I think most of us can agree it's an absolute Christmas classic. Now, not to pull a bait and switch, but things are about to get real because I want to make a point with that song. And I just want to get this a tiny bit serious with you because I think that many of us have allowed the gospel of Santa Claus, if I can say it that way, to inform and even shape our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what I mean by that. If you simply insert the name Jesus Christ into that song instead of Santa Claus, the words of that song, if we're honest with ourselves, serve nearly, they are nearly a commentary for our popular 21st century Christian theology. Oh, dude. Gonna. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Jesus Christ is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good. For goodness sake. Now, no preacher, pastor, priest in the entire world would dare to put it so bluntly, but that is essentially the message that we wrap up in a bow and hand to the masses in modern day churches and on Christian radio and Christian movies and in books. Be good and follow all of the rules because he is watching you, right? You don't want coal in your stocking. So make sure you're saying your prayers, make sure that you're tithing at least 10%, make sure you put a smile on your face during the passing of the peace and pretend that everything in life is great. But the truth is, being good for goodness sake is actually not Christianity at all, but is a form of karmic Buddhism at the very best. So last week I told a story about a woman I met in Chick-fil-A whose Christian testimony went something like this. In the midst of a horrendous car crash, as her car 
ripped and flipped and rolled down the interstate, she cried out to God this prayer, God, I pray that I've done enough good to get to heaven. And by her own testimony, as my children in Chick-fil-A sat with their mouths gaping wide open, by her own testimony, she told us that clearly she had not yet done enough good. And that is, in fact, why God gave her one more lease on life, one more try to be good for goodness sake, so that one day, when things get real, she might actually get to heaven. Now, some of you pointed out last week, and I'm sorry, I didn't finish the story. <laughs> I just left it at that, and that's I'm pretty good at cliffhangers. I asked the woman, I asked her, in the middle of Chick-fil-A... How she might know if she's ever done enough good to be accepted and approved. And her answer was almost verbatim what Buddha said on his deathbed. We can't ever truly know if or when we have done enough. So strive without ceasing. The gospel according to this woman in Chick-fil-A was never stop. Day or night, rain or shine, work. Do everything in your power while you still have breath to be good for goodness sake. Because when the lights go out, that's it. And if you haven't done enough good, then it's your, well, it's your fault. And you guys, we would be amazed to find how many professing Christians actually base their lives around this gospel. All the while they forget, the world forgets that the word gospel literally translates good news. There is no good news in if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. There is no good news in strive without ceasing. That is not good news. That is not Christ. That is karma. That is works-based righteousness. It is slavery and it is death. And that is the exact message that the young professing Christians of first century Galatia had started to believe. That's what we are looking at in this series, The Gospel for Life. Would you, hopefully you have your Bibles open to Galatians chapter 1. For the sake of context, I'm actually going to back up. I'm going to start reading in verse 6. This is Paul writing to the various churches scattered throughout Galatia that he had just planted. And they're already starting to believe a different version of the gospel, if you will. A different message our passage today is actually verses 10 through 24, but I'm going to start reading in verse 6. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, but even if we... Or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. 
verse 10. This is our passage this morning. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? We don't just say it, Father. We do believe that this is your word. Inspired through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Profitable to us and for us. For bringing by your Holy Spirit's power conviction upon our hearts for training us in right and sound doctrine and right and sound living. Lord, for equipping us with everything that we need for godliness, for living a good, godly life. We believe that all of that can be found in this word. And we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear what it is that you are speaking to us from this word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> so recall, recall with me <clears throat> from last week that the book of Galatians is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul, an eyewitness and a follower of Jesus Christ, to a handful of individual churches that he'd recently planted throughout the Roman province known as Galatia, which is basically modern-day Turkey. Now, Paul wrote this letter because of some disturbing news that he had received about the young churches in Galatia. I've already hinted at it. Namely, they had begun to follow a group of teachers known as Judaizers, who had traveled to Galatia, probably from Jerusalem, and they were preaching a nearly identical message to that of Paul's, only they were adding on one little detail. 
And it is essentially in response to that one little detail that Paul wrote this whole letter that we now refer to as the book of Galatians. It's in response to that one minor detail that the Galatians were embracing that led Paul in his horror to write in verse 6, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So in the book of Galatians, Paul is writing to say that the message I delivered to you, I delivered to you in full. It cannot be added to. It cannot be revised. Essentially, you cannot throw a second hockey puck onto the ice and still call it hockey. It doesn't matter if everything else remains the same. If there are the same number of players, same length of periods, same amount of periods. It doesn't matter if every other detail in the game is true to form. If you add so much as one minor additional hockey puck, it ceases to be hockey. I love hockey. Now, of course, they didn't love hockey. They didn't have hockey in first century Asia Minor, but you get the point. And the reason for Paul's intensity is because the Judaizers weren't revising a mere game. According to Paul, they were revising amongst the most fundamental doctrines in all of the Christian faith. And he was Right, And he was right to be horrified that the Galatians were embracing this revision, no matter how minor it might have seemed. And we're going to investigate that revision now. My prayer last week and this week is to set up a a sort of contextual base camp from which we can study the rest of this letter. So let's pretend for a moment... That every single one of us in this room believes that there is a perfect and holy creator God who currently exists. I'm I'm not so naive to believe that everybody in this room subscribes to that thought. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. But just pretend with me for a second. If an all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, holy creator God really exists then the million-dollar question for us this morning would be, how can we humans have a relationship with such a God? By the way, this is the question, this is the question that every major religion and faith institution on the planet is claiming to have the answer for. How can we humans have a relationship with the divine, with God? Now, to that basic question, listen, both Paul... And the Judaizers had the same answer. In order for humans to have a relationship with God, we must first be justified. In other words, we must first be cleansed from our sins and cleared of our guilt. Before we can come before a perfect and holy creator God, we must first be worthy of entering the presence of such a God, right? We must first be washed of our impurities and declared innocent. The word justification is a legal term used in the court of law. To be justified is to be declared innocent. 
So how can we humans have a relationship with a perfect and holy creator God? Both Paul and the Judaizers had the exact same answer. They were preaching the same message in regards to this. We can have a relationship with God only after we have been declared innocent by God. Only after we have been justified before God. Now, this begs the two million dollar question. How then can we be declared innocent by God? How can we be justified before God in order to have a relationship with God? Is justification conditional upon something? In other words, is there something that must be done for our justification? Once again, both Paul and the Judaizers had the same answer. They were preaching the same thing when it came to this. Our justification, they say, is conditional. Hear me. Paul is even preaching this. Our justification is conditional on the basis of perfect obedience to every rule and ritual and regulation given to us by God himself. So just so we're clear, so far, both Paul And the Judaizers are preaching the same message. Both Paul and the Judaizers taught that the only way we can have a relationship with God is through justification, by being declared innocent. In addition, both Paul and the Judaizers taught that the only way we can be justified before God is through obedience to all of the rules and rituals and requirements of God's law. Now... This is not great news. (laughs) Because I don't know the last time you peeked at your performance record. But mine is not good. When I read in Matthew chapter 5 that God's law forbids me to lose my temper with my wife and my kids... When I read that God's law forbids me to hold too tightly to my money and possessions. When I read that God's law forbids me to even think lustfully about a woman. When I read that God's law requires me to love him with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength. When I read in God's law that I am to do everything Whether I eat or drink or change a light bulb, I am to do everything consciously for His glory alone all the time. When I read what God's law requires of me, and then I take a second look at my life, I begin to feel the severity of how sinful I am. Because, heck, even the good things I do, I do them deep down because I want to be recognized and appreciated and thanked and glorified. Even the good things I do expose the pride and self-centeredness that is deep within my heart. Even the good things I do reveal how disobedient I actually am. 
And then the words of Paul in Romans chapter 3 start to ring louder than a gong in my guilty conscience. No one does good, he writes. No one is righteous, obedient from the heart. No one seeks for God. With this in mind, we've all turned aside in disobedience. But yet, the gospel that we see Paul preaching... The gospel that even the Judaizers are preaching at this moment is that the only way we can stand justified before God is through perfect obedience to Him. So now it begs the three million dollar question. A question that's posed in Psalm 130. If perfect obedience is what's required for us to have a relationship with God, who can possibly stand? Whose obedience can secure an innocent verdict? How can we be declared justified before a perfect and holy creator God? At this point, Paul takes one puck and slams it on the ice and he says, By faith in Jesus Christ, full stop. There is nothing on the end of that. Full stop. How can you and I be justified? He's answering this question. How can you and I this morning receive forgiveness and eternal life? Paul says one thing. Believe. Simply trust that God the Son, through His perfect, obedient life on earth, and through His perfect atoning death on the cross, and through His perfect victorious resurrection from the grave, all of which He accomplished in the place of His people, all we have to do is trust that everything Jesus has already done is all that is needed to justify you and I before a perfect and holy God. Hallelujah! It is finished and Lord I just need to repent for the moments that I'm just not crawling from my skin at hearing this gospel news and celebration because this is freedom this is the gospel that leads to life the gospel for life But this is not the gospel that the Judaizers were preaching. They had been with Paul all along until this very moment where they insisted on adding a second puck to the ice. And in so doing, they turned truth into deception. They turned freedom into slavery. They turned justification into condemnation. They turned Christianity into empty religion by this one little adjustment. How can we stand justified before a perfect and holy God? We ask the Judaizers and they say, by faith in Jesus Christ, puck number one, puck number two, and by cooperating with works of the law. Now, the difference might be subtle, so subtle that if you blink, you'll miss it. But Paul says 
It's the difference between the gospel truth and a very, very cunning lie. Here's Paul's mathematical equation that sets up the entirety of this book. Faith in Jesus Christ equals justification that will end up leading us to good works. So if you want to look at it as a math problem, faith in Jesus Christ equals justification plus works at the end. After all, he did save us into good works that he had prepared beforehand. We ought to grow in holiness. We ought to look like Jesus. We ought to strive and and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Paul's not denying that right now. We're talking about justification. We're talking about the equation that leads to us standing innocent before the Father. And the Judaizers come in with a slight adjustment to the equation. Faith in Jesus Christ plus works equals justification. Do you see where works falls in line in that equation? And it is all of the difference in the world. Scripture says no, no, no to that. No. Galatians 2.16 is crystal clear. A person is not justified by God by works of the law, not by anything that we do, but only by confident trust in what Jesus has already done. I say again, full stop. Full stop. That is really good news for you and I this morning. That is really, really good news. Because if you do that in- instant of introspection like I do, and I start, to, I start to look at what the law requires, I know I can't measure up to it. It humbles me. It breaks me. It does exactly what it was supposed to do, the law. It's supposed to show me all of the death that's reigning in my heart. For the rest of his time, Paul preaches to the Galatians exactly what he preaches to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy's dealing with, with some species of Judaizing theology as well. And Paul essentially says to all of these churches, You guys, those of you who try to come alongside Jesus to earn your justification through works of the law, you have no idea what you're asking for. Because like Buddha... And like the woman at Chick-fil-A and like all the children around the world on Christmas Eve, they will never know that they've done enough to be justified. How can we ever know that we've done enough? That we've obeyed the law of circumcision enough, which we're going to get into. As weird as that is, that's the one that the Judaizers cherry pick. We're going to get into that in future weeks. He's saying churches... If for one second you try to entertain this theology of faith plus works equals justification, you will fall into an endless pit of slavery and you will not be able to recite an assurance of grace in your gatherings because you'll never be assured of your grace. And Paul says this, and this is the essence of our passage today if you're wondering where the heck I am. Paul says this in our passage, he goes, I should know that it leads to slavery. And then he explains in verses 13 through 24, he explains how he should know. Because more than any other person in Galatia, Paul once lived his life in the endless pursuit of justification by works of the law. He was so committed to Judaism, he made the Judaizers look like the JV team. 
I lost my place. I wasn't, I wasn't waiting for a laugh. I, was, I lost my place. He was so zealous for the rituals and, and traditions that he actually killed other people who did not measure up to his level of works of the law. Paul was so steeped in Judaism, he would not have believed the true gospel of Jesus Christ unless Jesus Christ himself bore witness to it himself. And that's exactly what he did. When God, verse 15, Paul recollects, called Paul by grace, that is unmerited, unearned favor, Paul wasn't even seeking the Savior. Yet Jesus Christ was revealed to him on the road to Damascus, and Jesus Christ preached to Paul the true gospel. This is why Paul so adamantly defends the gospel he now preaches in verses 11 and 12. He is utterly possible. The go- he, is, he is utterly convinced. He is positive that the gospel he beholds is the real deal because he would have never made it up. Peter and James, the two other apostles, the the word apostle means an an eyewitness and and individually commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. Peter and James couldn't have even made, made it up. No message of man could have freed Paul from the enslaving chains of works based righteousness and justification that he was embedded in. Only the true gospel frees us to live in the approval of God, not for it. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are here who can honestly say that you look at the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and His perfect life beforehand, you know that He did so in your place. You know that you cannot earn the righteous favor of God the Father and you call upon Jesus for help. Brothers and sisters, do you not know that you have God's approval right now? Signed, sealed, delivered, child of the King. And I don't have time to tap out all the theology, but I would argue that you cannot lose that citizenship once you have have had it. Do you live, are we living in the freedom of Titus chapter 3 verses 4 and 5 that we read for our assurance of grace this morning? This is the testimony that we adhere to when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Past tense. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. I mean, that's plain English, correct? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Does your whole being rejoice with the psalmist who wrote this morning's call to worship on the front of your bulletin. Does your whole being rejoice? Does your flesh dwell secure knowing the promise of Romans 8 that if God is for us, if we stand approved, who can possibly be against us? Because who can bring any charge against God's elect? 
Since it is God and God alone through Jesus Christ who justifies, we don't get to play a part in that bit. Only the true gospel frees us to live in, now, the approval of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, breathe deeply and rest soundly. And if you're worried about works, let the joy of the gospel well up in your heart and you will want to obey Jesus with all you are. Last week, Paul didn't hesitate to draw a hard line in the sand, saying that if anyone teaches or embraces a different gospel than faith alone in Jesus Christ, he or she is accursed. It is a tough truth. It is nevertheless true. And Paul began our passage this morning in verse 10, if you glance back down, by essentially saying this to us this morning, I am not sorry for drawing such a hard line in the sand. For if I had not done so, I would simply be trying to win the approval of man rather than resting in the approval of God which can only come from the true gospel. Now here's how I feel led to apply that verse. Like Paul, those of us in this room who have indeed received the glorious truth of the gospel, we are compelled to stand up for it at all cost. At the cost of our reputation, at the cost of friendship, the cost of relationship with family, at the cost of our jobs, at the cost of looking bigoted and narrow-minded, at the cost of having to take off your coexist bumper sticker? We need to be honest with ourselves in light of verse 10s in the Bible like this. Much of our gospel silence, and I'm, I'm speaking from a pastor's standpoint, much of the reason why pastors are not leaning into the doctrine of justification by faith alone is because it's not ecumenically unifying. It looks really um, arrogant. What about you at the water cooler at work or some of the students in the cafeteria at school? What about in the presence of some of your family members who you know do not subscribe to justification by faith alone? Much of our gospel silence is due to fearing man more than we fear God. I would in fact say all of our gospel silence is due to fearing man more than we fear God and wanting to please man more than we please God. Last week I went pretty hard on the Catholic Church and I have had all week to reflect on it and I'm not sorry. I am sorry that I am sorry that there are some whose consciences might have been seared last week because I know the pain of being preached the true gospel 
but I also know the wonderful healing joy that comes on the back end of that. I went hard against the Catholic Church, not because I like to be combative or because I have a particular bone to pick with them, but in a way I do because of all of the faith institutions that claim to be Christian today, Roman Catholicism is the only, it's the absolute closest relative of the Judaizers. It is almost part and parcel theology. So it's not that I have a beef more against the Catholic Church than the Mormons. That is not true. It's not that I have a beef with the Catholic Church more than my own pharisaical heart. That is certainly not true. But it is my job and my delight to get to stand here, as is yours in your workplaces, or when you join up with the other leaders of Worcester in the town square, or whatever the case is, we get to herald the gloriously controversial yet wonderful news that you and I don't get to add one single smidgen to our justification and neither does anyone else and it is freeing and it is loving for us to tell them that because otherwise it is slavery because at the end of the day being good and I'm I'm joking when I say for goodness sake it's not exactly a replica from that Christmas song but you get what I'm saying when does that ever end When can we ever know that we stand justified before a holy God, if not by faith alone? I tell you what, the gospel is scandalous, and if we are believing it rightly, it should make us uncomfortable, and then it should make us leap for joy. But brothers and sisters in Christ, you are obligated to share this with your Catholic friends who think they have assurance. In fact, they They don't, because one of the doctrines of the Catholic Church is that you cannot have assurance. You and I are obligated. And what I love about this passage this morning is that when we embrace the true gospel, look all the way at the end at verse 24. Look at what comes from it. The people who aren't even near us hear of the testimony and the life change, the freedom that we have, and they glorify God because of it. Worship results from standing on the gospel and saying no matter what, we will be advocates of its truth. We will preach it with our lips and our lives and the world Men and women and children all throughout the world, they will come, they will come to glorify God because of it. But let us be bold enough to preach it because what? Are we fearing man now? That's, that's not what a citizen of the kingdom of heaven gets to do. We have one fear and it's a reverent, worshipful fear because we have been accepted as children of the king. And so, as I prepare to transition into our communion this morning. I'm going to invite Ed and and John forward. And like we see in verse, uh, verse 24, what we see here is a right theology informing right doxology. It's a right belief and understanding of God leading us to worship. And for those of us who have heard, by God's grace, the gospel clearly spelled out today, that it's through Jesus' substitutionary perfect life and His substitutionary perfect death 
and his substitutionary perfect resurrection on your behalf, all you and I have to do is to say, yes, I want that. I need that. I cannot atone for my own sin. And what God gives us, the Holy Spirit enters into our hearts. He applies the gospel to our hearts. We are regenerated. We are born anew so that we can actually come to receive this good news. And we are created into a new creation. Our old ways, our sins washed away. We are as pure as white snow. It should lead us to praise and to worship. There's no earning that needs to happen later on this afternoon. Go home, and if if football is your game of choice, sit on the couch and drink deeply from the well of Christ's freedom. And so I would invite our communion servers to come forward. And when I pray, um, after I pray... Brothers and sisters, you are able to to rise and to come up as you see fit. But this is what I would encourage. Before doing so, um, let's bring our hearts forward to the Lord. Let's ask Him to reveal any sins in us, any grievances, any any ways that are that are leading us away from Him. Let us come before Him with transparency and honesty and repentance. And then let us worship and celebrate that for those who confess their sins, well, he is faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. I would also encourage this. If you're here this morning and you would not call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, first of all, I am elated that you are here. And I hope that you stay for our time of eating in the cafe. But I would encourage you not to come up and take of the symbolic body and blood of Jesus that was broken and poured out for sinners. Um, Instead, I would invite you to take Jesus and believe the gospel and speak with me this morning. And I'm going to pray now. Father, the gospel is simply scandalous. And I thank you even for the feelings right now that are welling up in me of man, I can't measure up. I don't deserve to actually come forward and to take communion, remembering the body and blood of my Savior. I don't deserve it. And Lord, your word tells us in Matthew 5, 3, that that's the ticket. It's to realize that we are utterly bankrupt before you and that we have no boast. And that, in and of itself, is what makes our ability to come before you. Jesus has opened the way. And we simply want to walk into it. And so, Lord, let us end this time in celebration of the the body and blood of Jesus with worship, singing and crying out to God with thankfulness in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.